Hey, thank you for tuning in to Pierre Pressure Podcast. This is episode 20. Thank you so much, all of you who've been listening all along or who are just dropping in from time to time or who are listening at 1.5 speed or 2.0 speed and skipping most of the interviews and just going to the uh, really amazing musical parts or whatever you're doing. Thank you for listening. It's been really fun and we've made it to 20 20 episodes. Right now, please stop listening and go on to your iTunes platform and subscribe and leave a little comment. It's the least you can do. I know it's so annoying for me to ask, but you have to do that because it makes everything work. Work, 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 work. Uh, I have a goal. I'm trying to reach 17 listeners by 2037. Sorry, I mean I'm trying to reach 17 million listeners by 2021. So please help me with that. For this episode of the podcast known as Pure Pressure, Pressure, I was really happy to sit down and talk with J.G. Thurwell. He's a composer, musician, artist, producer, who's been making incredible, original, bizarre, and fantastic music for many, many years. J.G. Thurwell has done so many projects and so many different interesting things over the years, it's kind of impossible to keep track of, but he started off playing with The Birthday Party and Prague Vec back in London and went on to form his solo project Fetus, which has had many different incarnations and continues to this day. Among those alter egos, there's Clint Ruin, Frank Want, Steroid Maximus, Wiseblood, Manorexia, Zordox, Colero Nocebo, The Immaculate Consumptive, and many, many more. We'll sort all this out and talk about all his projects, including his ongoing compositions for orchestras and for animated series including Archer, Dicktown, and the Venture Brothers. I got to know Jim in 1996 when we went on tour together. I was in a band called Morning Glories that opened for Fetus during his first tour in Europe in many, many years. He put together a huge rock band and it was a big production and it was a really life-changing experience for me. So it was kind of a departure for him and it was a really exciting moment and one that he enjoyed and then moved on from and continued to do the million and a half other things that he's always cooking up in his laboratory. So I really enjoyed talking to him, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with J.G. Thurwell. All right. Okay. I'm talking to J.G. Thurwell, okay. musician, composer, master of disaster. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. Thanks for talking to me, Jim. Yeah, sure. It's nice to talk to you. I've known you for a long time. Mm-hmm. We met in around 95, I want to say. Yeah. And then we went on this big tour that was a pivotal moment in my life. Mm. Got to open for you and um, the band I was playing, Morning Glories, we got to open for you in Europe and it was the first time you had uh, been back there, I guess, in eight years or something yeah I think so yeah seven years or something like that Mm. all right so I want to go back to Australia Mm -hmm. if you don't mind Mm -hmm. Um, obviously you're from Australia and you started there and uh, started playing there and I know you. I didn't start playing there you didn't okay Um, I stopped well it's I was making you know I started playing instruments there but I didn't start professionally there Um, 
I started, you know, I learned instruments when I was a kid. And uh, what instruments did you learn? Um, I the first thing I learned was cello, um, mm. which I didn't last long on at all. Um, I didn't really click with sight reading. I didn't do any of the instruments that I learned long enough to really um, click with sight, sight reading. It was cello, and then it was percussion, like classical percussion. Mm. Um, and uh, this is in school. Yeah, and then I st- then I didn't play for a long time, and then uh, although we had a piano in the house. Um, and then when punk rock came along and it kind of democratized the uh, idea of playing an instrument where anyone could play an instrument and you didn't have to be a virtuoso, that inspired me to pick up, get a bass guitar and I Mm. taught myself bass guitar and then, then I moved to London and when the first thing I did when I got to London was buy another bass guitar and then the next thing I did was by a synthesizer and okay. that was a wasp um which was a small uh, it was a cheap synthesizer which was an all-in-one unit it had a touch sensitive keyboard and um even had a built-in speaker and ran on batteries and and, wow. AC, and ac do you still have it no i wish i did oh man it, must uh, be cool. it has a speaker yeah and it had two oscillators i think and wow. um so it was really, uh, and it was, so it was really portable too. Yeah, uh, you could just put it under your arm, and um, they sold for ninety nine pounds, and that was my first synthesizer. And then I, start, I started making tapes, uh, okay. just on cassette. And then I got a little um, delay unit, and uh, wow. then I got another, I got another synthesizer, a Korg MS twenty, and that that was my little. That was your um, setup. Yeah, my little setup. Did you, um, and were you also playing bass on stuff at that time? Um, I think I was, yeah, I had the bass, but I was mainly, uh, you know, I was mainly doing the synthesizers there. Right. And um, I was making tapes in my room, and um, then at a certain point, actually, Keith Allen, who I recently reconnected with, I was squatting with at the time, and he's a, an actor, comedian in okay. London. Um, he said, you know, he knew that I was making these tapes in my room and he said you've got to get out and start playing with other people these wow. friends of mine have um, have just broken up their band which was called Prague Vec and that was a what was it called? Prague Vec okay P-R-A-G-V-E-C and um, that was a good group they had a couple of singles out and I'd seen them play a bunch of times and I liked them um, he said well they they had recently dissolved and they were looking you know playing with some people so I met with them and I ended up playing synthesizers with them oh, wow. for about eight or nine months we and we made a record we made kind of half a record which turned into okay. an album with, along with some other scattered tracks that they had come up with Like in the late seventies, early eighties, like this what's eighties? No, this is nineteen about nineteen eighty. It yeah. might have been might have been the start of nineteen eighty. Yeah. Uh this happened. Yeah. Um no, late seventy nine, eighty, something yeah. like that. Um and uh so that experience taught me that I wasn't interested in working in a democratic environment. I wasn't interested. <laughs> so that in, was a band situation that you jumped into. Yeah, I didn't want yeah. to be in a band. I didn't want to right. accommodate other people's ideas. Right. Um, 
that was that was really the springboard to making Fetus. And while I was still with Spec Records, we, we were called Spec Records, which was the name of their record company. Okay. Um, so we made an album under the name of Spec Records, which was uh, called No Cowboys. While I was still in Spec Records, I made the first Fetus record. And uh, Fetus single, I went into the studio and recorded and mixed both sides in one day. And oh man, that was at the end it was of a single. Yeah, that was the end of 1980, and um, it came out on the first of January 1981. But before we, Spec Records was going to do this one show opening for Cabaret Voltaire at the ICA in London, and um, uh, right before that show, they kicked me out because I think they sensed my, you know, dis, you know, dissatisfaction. My, Dissatisfaction. And you were a synthesizer player in that band? I played, yeah, I played my synthesizers, but I also made noises and stuff. Yeah. I mean, I brought a bag of tricks yeah. always. I mean, like, I think on the record I'm credited with playing alarm clock and <laughs> things like that. I mean, objects. I always right. had, like, a lot of objects yeah. that made sounds. Yeah. A little suitcase, which was my bag of tricks. Nice. Um, but before that, um, ex- before the Spec Records thing, um, I had connected with Steve Stapleton from Nurse with Wound, and that was my first studio experience. Mm-hmm. Um, I was working for Virgin Records on Oxford Street, and he wor- worked down the street, and he came into the store one day when the first Nurse with Wound album had come out, and he asked me, had I listened to this album, what, what was it like? And so I described it, and he, I think he was impressed that I had listened to it. So, And he had recorded it? Yeah, it was his album. Oh, it was his album. Yes. He was testing you? He was testing me, yes. So so we we started to um, hang out, and he invited me to the studio, and um, he he had every Friday night booked at this little 8-track studio in Shepherd's Bush, and he would go in and he would just do stuff. On his own, like for himself. Yeah, or he'd invite people, and mm. working with him really expanded my mind about what music is. You know, um, he would go into the studio with no instruments. He wouldn't use instruments. Mm. He would make use anything that made a sound. Yeah, and he manipulated. Yeah, and he mm. would make sounds with it, manipulate it, overdub it, put other stuff together with it. I would, and he would invite me to come in, and I would, I would play things and. By the time he was through with it, it was totally unrecognizable. Yeah. I had no idea what I had played and what he yeah. played and what what was on there. And also his musical taste really opened my eyes to a lot of things and working at Virgin. So that's where I really got exposed to 20th century classical music. Yeah, 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 yeah. But I mean, if you're manipulating sounds at, at that time in like the early '80s, obviously it's all analog. So like, 
I mean, I guess, so how, how are you doing it? Like with tape, manipulating tape yeah, or speeding like, things up? Yeah, echoes? Exactly, okay. like very speed. There weren't a lot, there wasn't like there's a lot of outboard. Right. Um, but tape loops, right. slowing things down, speeding them up, turning them back. Chopping tape up physically. Yeah, like that. chopping up tape, yeah. um, using, you know, radio signals <clears> and, you know, using, using things that made sounds that you weren't, weren't um, recognizable yeah familiar with playing and then close micing things that yeah. might have micro sounds you know right I remember like seeing a, I saw a credit of one of your bands I forget it was where you're playing quarter inch jack with amp Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that makes yeah. sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Forget what album it was. Mm-hmm. So that was the the start of Fetus. Is you're doing those record th- that record the recordings with him? No. Well, f- Nurse with Wound. Oh, you were doing was Nurse something. With Wound with yeah, him. those were Nurse with Got Wound it. records. You know, <laughs> yeah. Fetus was always just me. Um, but I wanted I used that same studio that he used. Okay. That's where I made my first um, seven inch. Um, so that came out on the 1st of January 1981 on my own label, self Relation Records. Yeah. And I, that was the, also the dawn of very early in um, the history of independent uh, labels, yeah. uh, the independent label explosion that happened after punk rock. Yeah. Um, with labels like Small Wonder and Rough Trade and Beggar's Banquet and, and so on. Well, Beggar's Banquet was small then, a huge now. But, um, right. um, so the means of creating and distri- distributing were important to the process. And the other thing that was important to the process was um, I didn't set out to be a musician. I set out to be someone who made records. And so okay. I was making an artifact that everyone could own an yeah. original of um, a multiple that copies yeah that physical. was an original yeah um, and um, I was a record maker so I didn't sit around um, trying to become proficient on a musical instrument right. I would um, think of the overdub that I wanted to make I would learn how to make that overdub and then put the instrument back in the box yeah um, and that was how I constructed things so yeah. I was using the studio as my tool right. to create these things and that was in the early 80s and there wasn't this was pre-midi pre-sampling mm-hmm. um, pre-digital recording obviously well but one of the but there's also a vocal element to a lot to all that music right back mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. Um, so you're you're singing or screaming or talking or whatever the hell you need to do mm-hmm. to get your point across. So that was important, even though you're saying uh, you didn't want to be a musician, but you had you wanted to express yourself with words. Yeah, I had, with words end. and with words and music. Well, yeah, and I was I was making instrumentals as well from pretty early on. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, it's so because I, what I'm I guess the point I'm making is you could easily be dismissed as like as the words not really being that important but I wouldn't say that because they're super clever there's always a lot going on there was mm-hmm. always a lot parallel with the music or the soundscapes a mm-hmm. lot of yeah interesting and it, stuff going on and it was it was it was composed it was through composed I mean I I, I knew what I was going to do before I went in there I had like mm. a complex n- numerical system figured really? out how to and also the order in which to record things because I was I only had eight tracks to work with, but I had maybe 20 tracks of 
instruments right. that I wanted to record. So they were I, bouncing and yeah, bouncing down to one bounces. track. Yeah, and, yeah. So filling up six tracks and then bouncing that to one. Yeah. And then, but if you want to do say six tracks of backing vocals, right. Then you have to do all of them first before you've re- recorded any instruments because you need those six tracks. Right. So you ha- so I, I did that to- sort of same process with the four track when I first started. Yeah. It was just really economic. You really had to plan ahead. I guess is what you're saying. Mm, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's really so. That's interesting because I've been trying to figure out how your how your stuff gets constructed, and I think I've heard you mention a numerical system mm-hmm. before, but. How does that work? It's like you know this happens for seven or eight bars, and then this happens yeah. for fourteen, or exactly. Then this other thing happens. Yeah. And it's all written out. Yeah, I wrote it out in advance. You know that this would be, you know, this A section, B section, C section, or if it was in a more of a song form, you know, verse one, verse two, bridge, blah blah blah. Yeah, and um, the the amount of bars, and then I would put down a count, like a click track and a count, where I was literally on tape going chorus one two three four. Oh, and you were talking yeah it. i was talking it so on As my a guide yeah so on my headphones i could hear this count and click and i would wow. know where i was in the song because you know and so i'd have them started at two minutes but so i'd, I'd know where to jump in you know? oh wow and so i'd know you recorded that, your own like directorial like your kind of producer voice exactly track. yeah yeah so wow. so i knew that okay the um you know the kick drum comes in at uh, you know set in the second chorus or something like that. I'd hear it leading up because I'd say chorus before you know one beat before the chorus would kick in. So amazing. that was one way That's that amazing. I did it. And then eventually, did those when I had enough, tracks ever get like bleed into the song? Uh, sometimes, you can, yeah. Sometimes you hear ding, do, do. Um, <laughs> chorus. Yeah, and then. <laughs> um, that's great that, but uh, then then you'd erase that and once I had enough right. instruments on there you know I could erase it and I knew, knew where I was but uh, the drum tracks I used to record you know if, if it was a kit um, I would record the instruments one by one I yeah. wouldn't sit behind the kit but right. I'd re- record the kick drum and then the hi-hat and then the snare and then the toms and, and that all ends up on and one then track bounce it down to one that's amazing I mean I and do that now but it's easy with digital yeah you can oh. sit there and record a kick drum and you can also loop it or you can do all yeah. that but yeah to build a, a drum track analog one one sound at a time is mm-hmm. really labor intensive yeah well you'd have to rem- imagine you know what's going to happen next where the snare is you have play. the whole thing in your mind yeah you're basically yeah it's like composing on paper but in your mind mm-hmm. yeah well which brings me to another question like the, you said you were then that that guy whose name I'm spacing on introduced you to modern classical music Steve Stapleton yeah, yeah. and so there's a, there's always been a really big um, vein of like classical instrumentation bombastic orchestral stuff in, mm-hmm. your, in your music all the time so I wonder how some of that stuff comes about because it sounds like full fully recorded orchestral mm-hmm. so are there s- samples of stuff that's orchestral or some of it recreated and what I'm doing now oh, well now I think is I think now you were saying when we before we started talking on the mic that you work with people who can read music now <laughs> um, well you know I, I I do a lot of different stuff I mean yeah. I um, I work you know with a logic with a workstation right. and I have big um, uh, orchestral libraries okay uh, and so I'll, I can record an orchestra in MIDI you know right and uh, yeah and so I can write the French horn parts or the right. you know, string parts or whatever which 
which works great to a certain extent, but then sometimes you want to put a lead instrument or a, a real instrument on top, which gives it a, a, a more sense of a life, of, yeah. yeah, a sense of reality to everything, right? Um, and but I, you know, and then I've you know I've used samples extensively. I don't really lean so heavily on sampling. Did you, know. you used to do that a lot more? Like, were, were there times earlier where it was? samples of like orchestras or strings or horns there's, stuff but like there's that? been bits like that yeah, yeah especially earlier on and i guess you got to be careful now because of um rights if i use samples they're just they're so so small small or you know they might be a chord or something like that right. but you know You know, I I always used fragments of sound, found sound from records and the early uh, material, which I would compile onto cassettes and then take them into the studio and then use the pause button on the cassette player to wait until I wanted that sound to come in and then unpause it and then that sound would play. And you would very speed the tape to get it into the correct pitch or, you know. Yeah. uh, It's like basically like being a a DJ for a rapper or something with a turntable but you're doing it with a cassette yeah or you know but but, you know the same theory of what sampling is right Um, but it was before that technology existed Um, or I would do it also with tape loops or bringing in records and spinning them in and and things like that that wasn't exclusively what I did but I did I did construct some tracks exclusively from tape loops Um, on the first album Death um which I just recently reissued. Um, there's one track that is just tape loops. What track is that? It's called um, uh, What Have You Been Doing? And when you say tape loops, like it's... Um is it reel to reel, and you're making a loop that closes and keeps going? Yeah, okay. physically around, physically, physically creating yeah. loops that would go around the studio, yeah. and then putting them onto tape onto right. their um, onto their own track, and then bouncing them and cutting them in and out as they would bounce across into a sub mix, wow. and then constructing it with that. And but there was <clears throat> a lot of things going on there, like found speech and um, sound effects, and um, and found you know found instruments and and things like that. So like this is early '80s, and I've you know I've heard a lot of people, or I've heard it said that you were you were creating a thing called industrial at that point, it's kind of like or that like the industrial term. How do you feel about it? Um, yeah, I I. I don't like the I word. I don't like to be <laughs> categorized as with the I word. Um, when I think of industrial, I think of Throbbing Gristle. They had right. a label called Industrial Records. And then um, then there was groups like Einstutz and Neubauten who were literally using you know, metal and striking metal and using machinery to create their music. And to me, that's the purest form of that. And what it became later on was kind of, you know, um, dance music was a d- 
distortion, you know. Yeah, um, right. It's not so you don't like that where, what, where that term ended up. Well, it's nothing I identify with, right. and I but I seem to get lumped in with that stuff. I mean, well, you you worked with those guys back back in the day, like people Noe from Bounten. yeah, and yeah, like yeah. and Nick Cave and stuff, and so there was crossover there. So yeah. maybe this is a good segue. How you how you get got involved with those guys? Well, Noy Bounton, um, I had heard their music from pretty early on I, in the record store I would I was um, I voraciously devouring every uh, independent seven inch, German seven inch that came in and I had a huge <coughs> collection of that stuff and uh, I I thought I was very very interested in Einstein and Neubauten and then I went to Berlin um, this is around about the time that the birthday party moved there. Mm-hmm. And oh, they moved to Berlin? Yeah. Oh. So they moved there in about 80, 81 or 82. So I... Um, and, uh, and you moved there as well? No, I didn't move oh, there. Okay. I went to visit, and, um, and and that was the first time I saw Neubauten. It might have been 81. It was 81 or 80. I think it was... No, it's actually, I think it was 82. And um, they blew me away. It was just amazing. Um and I said to them, you know, I'd met them and, you know, and um, said, are you interested in your records coming out in the UK? And they said, yeah, and um, we talked about it. And I had a meeting with Rough Trade. And at that point, I'd gotten a P&D deal, production and distribution hmm. deal with Rough Trade. This is, by then, I had done, I'd self-released um, three singles and a, and an al- and two albums and a 12-inch EP. And so for the second album, they did a P&D deal with me. So I said, well, I wanted to start this um, subsidiary label of self-immolation called Heart, and I want the first release to be Einstein and Neubauten. Wow. Um, uh, I wanted to, first I wanted to license um, Der Stieges Tier, this 12-inch that they had done, and release it in the UK. And then in the course of our discussions, they said, well, what we'd rather do is a compilation of a bunch of material. So I Hmm. said, yeah, that's great. So we put this compilation together, um, which uh, turned into Strategies Against Architecture, Volume 1. And and then around about that time, I got involved with this label, Some Bizarre. And I was... I was introduced to Steve-O from Some Bizarre by Matt Johnson from The The, uh-huh. who's a close friend of mine. Oh, okay. Um, so then Steve-O heard my stuff, and he really uh, responded to that, and he wanted to sign me, and I said, well, I'm also working with this other group, Einstein and Neubauten, and, um, and I'd spoken to Neubauten whether they were interested in you know, working with that, this label. And You're probably the guy that. who can pronounce their name better than anyone else <laughs> who doesn't speak <laughs> native I'm German. I'm sure there's plenty of Germans who can. <laughs> yeah. um, um, and, uh, and then he really liked Einstein and Neubauten, but he didn't want to do this. He wanted to do new material. He, mm-hmm. was, he didn't want to do this compilation that we'd put together. So I ended up taking it to Mute Records, okay. and then Mute released that um, Released the the, the mm-hmm. compilation, yeah, the, the, the yeah. strategies against architecture, volume one. So, so you kind of like so I I formed put that together with them. You sort of A and R'd their yeah. release in the UK. Yeah, wow. and then and then I introduced them to some bizarre, and then um, and then we put that album onto mute. And, and did you get so. signed to mute as a result? Like were you no no mute? I signed to some bizarre. 
Oh, you signed to Sun Bazaar, yeah, yeah. which is a subsidiary of Mew. Is no, it's nothing to do with nothing Mew. To do with no, Mew. no, no, totally different labels. Okay. Yeah. So I didn't realize you were like, um, so did you put out, was this label that you had, uh, did you put out a lot of other stuff? Was no, it mostly that was, your own that vehicle? Was, that was going to be the start of it. I was interested mm-hmm. in doing that. And I also, at that time, I really wanted to do a Last Poets um, Twelve oh, inch. I love the I, last poet. And I never. New I never, York. Yeah. Like, I ne- oh yeah. I never followed through on that. Um, because That's so that, funny. What, what did you connect with them? Oh, it was about. that. It was that album, "Delights of the Garden." Which I have I one of their albums. It's beautiful. There's it's, some really cool stuff. It's this incredible album that has Bernard Purdy playing drums, and I was really okay. into that album. And I thought it would be great to do a twelve-inch with two of the tracks from that album. Beyond the fire. So Neubauten, we put that put that album out on mute, and um, and then I got involved with some bizarre, and then I was just went full steam on recording, you know, because they were able to um, facilitate a budget where I could get into twenty four track studio. And, okay. Um, so that brought my production values up a real lot, and then yeah. the first result of that was the scraping fetus off the album. Um, Scrape and feed us off the wheel album whole. The different personas, it's like it's it's a little confusing because it's like your fetus, but then sometimes your credit is like scraping fetus off the wheel is playing this song, like. I never know if it's the name of the of the band, uh, sorry, of the album or the name of you who's doing the song. Sometimes in in one album, there's different incarnations of fetus. Yeah, doing different things, happened. right? Yeah. yeah. Well, it, that all happened kind of in the first ten years of yeah. fetus. I was doing. Um, different variations on the fetus name it was mm-hmm. fetus under glass you've got fetus on your breath mm-hmm. scraping fetus off the wheel fetus all new to review <laughs> fetus interrupt us and so on and you know each project had a slightly different intention um i after about ten, after the first 10 years i got burnt out on that and i just kept to fetus and then i started other projects like steroid maximus mm-hmm. and manorexia and zordox later on yeah um so yeah, there were different variations on fetus, and and one of the um, motivators behind that was also um, just I was kind of influenced by the residents in creating a, a like a collective, yeah, a collective and an aura of um, an, an anonymity behind yeah. or mythology behind these um, projects. And so the first fetus under glass single, I said that it was. Um, to Brazilian statistics collectors and their, pen, their pen pal from Athens, Georgia. And I <laughs> discovered that you could send out a press release yeah. that said that and it would get published. And so all of a sudden you're sowing these seeds of confusion and That's mythology. Great. And so the subsequent single I said, well, that group had split up, but you've got fetus on your breath. There's a seven piece group um, based in San Francisco. and. I listed the seven members, and the seven members, one of the seven members was Clint Ruin, right. and 
later I, I performed with Clint Ruin, but there was also Frank Want and Philip Toss and Bubba Kowalski, and I used all these names in various um, projects later on. Um, it got a little hard to maintain that, um, so then I just became, say, because you were trying to, you were intentionally trying to confuse and mislead like journalists and stuff, right? Like you yeah. were this guy, or there is that guy. Those people exist. This other guy exists. Yeah, that must have been fun. It was. <laughs> it was. It was too exhausting. Yeah. It, was, it was too much. I don't. Yeah. Um, so, but then around when you that come time. to when I came to play live for the first time, then it was impossible to, you know, because I, when I started playing live, it was just me on stage with tapes. Oh, wow. Tapes and, like, no drum machines or just... No, it was just tapes. Wow. Um, that that was for, the, you know, for a couple of years. The first, yeah, first in London. iteration of... No, it was in New York, actually. Oh. I didn't play in London. Really? Yeah, I moved to New York in 83, actually before that Scraping Fetus Off the Wheel album came out. Um... I moved here as uh, as a result of um, a live project I did with Lydia Lunch, Nick Cave, and Mark Almond called the, the Immaculate Consumption. Yeah, so that there's like some sort of mysterious references to it on the internet, but I don't know if there's any um, recording of it or anything like. That. No, it was just a live. It was like two live shows or something. Three live, shows. three live shows. Two shows at Danceteria and a show at nine thirty. It's in insane. Is that the first time you you gotten? contact with Nick Cave was like your first like involvement with him oh no 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 we we knew each other pretty well by then in fact I had co-written a song on the first Bad Seeds album oh, right. with him. and I um, I even played live with the birthday party um, later on I see I I used to see the boys next door in Melbourne before I even left from is that pre-birthday party Is yeah it? that okay. was that was what they were called before they were called the birthday party and um you know, I would see them play in small clubs and parties and stuff, and um, they were amazing. Um, so from about 77, I didn't really know them socially then, and I met them, I got to know them better in London, and then in fact I became roommates with Mick Harvey. Oh, wow. And his girlfriend, Katie Beale. Um, and then I sort of... You when know, did I you first put on eyeliner? Eyeliner? <laughs> Guy liner? Guy liner. Uh, <laughs> um, probably around about that time. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Mm-hmm. Just wanted to clear yeah, that yeah, up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, I saw the birthday party many times. I ended up playing sax with them Amazing. at one show in Athens, um, which then ended Athens, up. Athens, Greece? Athens, Greece. Okay. Yeah, which then ended up on a live album many years later. So yeah, there was a lot of cross-pollination going on there. and um, So then you're in New York and it's 83 and you're doing this crazy project, Immaculate Consumptive. Yeah. Um, it was pretty, it was more structured almost like a cabaret review. Oh, okay. We all had, uh, we had created backing tracks and there were also live instruments. Um, we had created the backing tracks in London um and like like it was Lydia did um let's see I'd start Lydia did a couple of songs with me playing sax 
and then I did a like a song with Mark Almond. He did a maybe a solo song, and then I played sax on one of his songs. Then Lydia and I did a duet, and I did a couple of songs, and then Nick did a couple of songs, and then we did a song all all together, all four of us, and um, and then I think it ended with Nick playing the song A Box for Black Paul, which is oh, on yeah. the first um, Bad Seeds album. Yeah. Um, but he never finished it, and uh, he would... <laughs> He would right. say, it's a very long song, and he would say, and he would get halfway through, and he'd say, and then it would, okay, and then it goes on like that for a bit longer, and then he'd walk off. And yeah, like, that's what, what I, that's what, what I was referring to. What? He just, like, and he so like, that always you guys made have me heard mad. Of. Yeah, that, that always made me mad that he never, Oh, he so never, he did that every single time. I think so, yeah. Um, so it was, it was like four very strong personalities. Yeah, to say the least. At once. Yeah, so that, that project was initiated by Lydia at that point Lydia and I were involved and uh, I came to New York I'd been living in London for five years and as soon as I landed in New York it was like the anti-London um, okay because London is very dispersed it still is geographically and the, the bars closed at 11 the subway stopped at midnight um, when I came to New York, it was very um, compact geographically. Yeah. I mean, it was very East Village centric. Right. You know, no one really went below, uh, below Houston or above 14th yeah. Street. Uh, you could walk everywhere. The bars were open till four, and then when they closed, there were after hours places. Um, and it was, I was like a kid in the candy store. Yeah. And then, yeah. so I just stayed. And um, I stayed for, I, would, I just didn't go back to London. I stayed for months. And um, and I w then I was going back and forth between New York and London a little bit because I was still recording in London, but I was I was based out of New York after that. And um, you were going to London to make records, at, like when you were yeah, doing your fetus stuff. I still had some commitments, recording commitments there, and I was making this, the uh, the second album for Some Bazaar, um, which was called Nail. And so I was back going back and forth, making those things and having meetings and and. Um, but at that point, you know, we Lydia and I had gotten a had gotten an apartment on 12th Street, and um, yeah, I was pretty much based here. Crazy Eddie's going computer crazy with an incredible selection of home computers and computer software. Atari, Texas Instruments, Commodore, Xerox. Crazy Eddie's got them all, all at the guaranteed lowest prices. Shop around, get the best prices you can find on computers, then go to Crazy Eddie and he'll beat them. Crazy Eddie's going computer crazy. Now's the time to get the home computer you've always wanted. Crazy Eddie, his computer prices are insane. So, well, let me put it this way. When you were um, younger, a lot of your music seemed to be inspired by anger, madness, mm -hmm. crazy energy, mm -hmm. bombastic darkness. performance and yeah. darkness. And you, you are a much calmer person. As we all get older, we all tend to calm down and be more, maybe more grounded. So how has your... How has that changed for you in terms of how you make music? I, you know, I would like to think that one evolves over the years mm -hmm. I mean I mean I don't I certainly don't think I'm the same person I was when I was 14 and I don't think I was the sa I'm the same person I was when I was 23 and mm -hmm. I'm definitely not the same person I was when I was you know 30 and 35 and you know um, maybe drinking too much and uh, uh, but you know um, I 
I, you know, one works on oneself through, you know, con consistently. And I think, you know, I, I would like to think that I evolve and I'm going to be a better person when I'm 70, you know. Sure. Um, but uh, my work ethic has changed a lot and I'm, I'm the most prolific I've ever been in my mm. life now. Um, not only because I have the means to do it, but I have like, I have different um, kind of trappings in my life and I do a lot of scoring and right. working in TV and um, there's a lot of deadlines. Um, right. But the other thing that, that has had um, an impact is not only scoring, but doing commissions and um, when, you know, but particularly with scoring, um, I came to, you know, I jumped in the deep end with that and mm -hmm. I started on working on Venture Brothers in yeah. 2003. Oh, okay. Um, wow, was that long ago? Yeah. Oh, wow. And they've done, we've, there's been long gaps between seasons, so we've only done seven seasons, but we're going to be starting on season eight this year. Um, I love the music that you do for that. It's just, it's fantastic. Oh, thanks. It's really great. Um, but uh, what, you know, I, I, at a certain point, I hit what Malcolm Gladwell calls the 10,000 hour right. part where things, you just get better at it, yeah. you know, by osmosis because you've done it enough. And I, I hit that around about season four. Okay. And uh, it's, it's no joke making, cranking out music for a, uh, a TV show that's on the air and that's need, need music, you know? Yeah. That's well, now, and now I do three. And so you have to, um, be able to discipline yourself but with the way that I you know when I've since I've done are you doing Archer as well sorry to interrupt yeah, I thought doing, I saw that I'm I doing love Archer that. and also another a new show called Dick Town which starts airing later this year wow um, congratulations thanks when um, did you start doing Archer did you go go in from the beginning with them no I came in okay. on season 7 they wow. did the first seasons the first 6 seasons were uh, they were using Needle Drop and so now I'm working. Is that on, library music or is that a specific yeah, okay. library music? So now you, they've got you as a composer. Yeah. So holy crap! Now I'm working on season eleven. So I've this is wow. my fifth season. Amazing. But um, what I was going to say about scoring is, um, you know, um, I have to look at an episode. I have to map out where the music goes. Sometimes a cue might be seven seconds long. Sometimes it's three and a half minutes long. But you know, I will look at the structure. I'll look at the time code. I'll decide what the tempo is, mm -hmm. what the beats are. I'll work with the director and say, okay, I'll have some understanding of what I might want to do, but they may say, okay, yeah, that's right, but mm -hmm. um, here we've got to let this gag come through, and here we've got to portray some sadness here mm -hmm. and some, um, uh, you know, here it, just sh it should just be percussive and then it gets big in this section. So I have a little roadmap mm -hmm. of emotionally where it's going to go and then if then i so i think of the tempo if there's any tempo changes think of what key i'm going to do it in and then go yeah so it's kind of like problem solving mm -hmm. then then you're putting this this puzzle together um but i have a framework i have a yeah. structure it's not like a black blank canvas uh, it's like you've done the underdrawing sure and that Discipline, doing that discipline thousands of times, mm. I find that I transpose that into my other work as well. So my Zordox project or my, um, you know, Manorexia and so on, um, I'll have an idea of 
some structure. It's not like I'm improvising. It's not like I have right. a blank canvas. I'm walk. I'm walking around, and things are stewing in my head about mm-hmm. what direction I want this piece. I'm going to start uh, start with goes, you know, where it goes and what it does. From the beginning, though, your music sounds sounds a lot. There are many moments where it sounds like the soundtrack to a film that doesn't exist or a crazy TV show. Mm-hmm. So it's like yeah. it was a really good fit. It seemed like a really natural. Well, that's how I got the job. Right. Somebody my, heard your stuff. Because it already sounded like soundtrack. Right. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to talk about this song, Oil Fields. And yeah. you, you recently did a performance with where you reworked a lot of your old songs into on this, in this orchestral setting. It was really beautiful. I went to the, one of the performances. Mm-hmm. This is one of the songs you did. Um, this seems like it's a pretty intense statement about war for oil, but I want to, mm-hmm. I want you to put your own words to it. Yeah. Tell I me. mean, it, I wrote it around about 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. And then that was, um, I mean, we're in a real age of anxiety now, mm-hmm. but that, you know, you forget how long this age of anxiety has been going on. And it was, um, that, that was about, um, George W. Bush's mm-hmm. war, yeah. and um, it's not only about the war for oil, but it's about the Middle East, and it's about um, it's also transcribing the rapture onto that, and this this um, sense that there is a feeling in the Christian right in this country that they are taking us on a path to doomsday because they believe that there's um, a rapture going to come and right. 200 people are going to get into a spaceship and they're going to be one of them for some hmm. reason. So Only 200, to, wow. So they're going to take us all with them.
Yeah. Uh, so that is kind of one of the cores in this I was song. wondering what Israel, but now that makes sense, because it's like Israel, the Holy Land is where it's all going to go down, because yeah. that's where and it the says 200 it, people yeah. are going to get on the spaceship. Well, it says Israel is the first to go. I mean, it's that, mm-hmm. you know, because I, I feel like that, you know, there's um, these tensions there. Yeah. Um, and so it's really a kind of a product of that anxiety, but it also talks about, you know, the wild one will return, you know, and we'll be watching the oil fields burn. I mean, that's what it's about. The rap, you know, the rapture will happen, and mm. you know, and the Middle East will be on fire, and it's the end of the world. And that's kind of what that track is about. Luckily, all those problems have gone away, and everything's fine now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's. I love it when people make statements um, like that in music and when people are explicit about it and then of course sometimes you need to take a break from that and just rock and entertain people I've it's funny doing this I don't podcast. believe in entertaining I believe, maybe you don't I believe in informing informing okay good yeah I mean if if I I believe you know I want to I want to make something beautiful out of that you know there's something I think there's a great beauty and melancholy to oil fields as well you sure know? and you don't necessarily it doesn't hit you over the head that that message you you can extract that message from the lyrics of oil field sure um, it is a, it's a it's a beautiful piece of music in its own right um maybe the other song we're going to talk about i'll, I'll meet you in poland i'll meet you baby. in poland maybe mm-hmm. that's that hits you a little more over the head mm-hmm. definitely it's like for me it, it seems like it's first person from the point of view of hitler getting excited about uh basically invading poland and Getting like sexually excited about invading Poland and and starting World War Two, basically well, the first invasion. No, it's actually about Poland. Um, I mean, it's actually about Hitler de- deceiving everyone right. and invading Poland. And it takes that situation um, and transposes it onto um, a jilted lover, like right. a, like the breakup of a relationship right. and betrayal, a relationship betrayal. Right. Six-inch guarantee of unilateral security. Well, me and Starver, we just signed a mutual non-aggression pact. I'm gonna put case one into effect. Thank you. 
so there's a lot of references to incidents in World War Two. Yeah, there's like I had to look up uh, Case White, which is Fallweiss, I think, was the German mm -hmm. term for mm -hmm. the first action yeah, against yeah, Poland. Yeah, exactly. And um, and then it says today is the first of September, which is right. the day that um, the Nazis invaded Poland. So yeah, it's really about that betrayal and. Um, and yeah, but tra transcribed into a, I think it's into a love affair. I think it's really important that we know the history of World War II because it still shapes us every day. Mm -hmm. And oh, yeah. I've been watching this TV show called World War II in Color. I don't know if you've seen it. It's on mm -hmm. Netflix. Mm -hmm. It's like a 10 part series. It's totally amazing. And I'm still learning stuff about it all the time. But I think we just need a real dose of history mm -hmm. right now mm -hmm. to show us what can happen. Yeah. Because I think people are just a little too complacent about all this stuff it's well my father was a world war ii veteran and he um he uh, enlisted when he was about 21 and um was um captured very early on in his military career wow. and spent three years in a prisoner of war camp wow in um thailand and singapore huh. um and so he was captured by the japanese wow um so that's amazing it's interesting because he you know so i have that in my family and also because my father and my mother came up in the depression and i think that, mm -hmm. that kind of resonates and he didn't really talk about that yeah. so much um when i was growing up but um some books and accounts have come out since then that i've seen and he died a few years ago and hmm. we never really talked about it but um um, it was pretty grim. You know? I'm sure. I mean, there's a piece in the, the series I was just talking about, about the war in the Pacific and the Australians and mm -hmm. the Japanese. And it's just, it was a massive, it was a, there was a lot going on there. <laughs> we forget yeah, yeah. about it. Oh, yeah. They were building that railroad that is depicted in Bridge Over the River Kwai. Wow. Um, but, uh, yeah, he, you know, they, they were, um, you know, they were having to burn bodies and, um, um, he he was lucky that he survived because he had a um a, a kind of a some kind of an infection that got his leg and he couldn't walk properly and you know normally they would have put a bullet in your head for yeah. that but he somehow got through that Dang. um and so he didn't it didn't really he um it wasn't something that he talked about a lot but um later his i feel like later in life that was how he identified as this veteran, you know, and not as probably more so than as a father or a businessman, mm -hmm. you know, whatever his, you know, what his career was and so on. Um, that was what defined uh, him. De yeah, defined his life. Those those incidents, I think, you know, from well, from it's interesting because that generation, it's like you suffer this trauma, massive trauma, which you then never talk about, mm -hmm. and then it just defines you, but you're not it's such a different way of being than what we're trying to do with ourselves. If there's a trauma, you try to talk about it, process it, this mm -hmm. and that. But that just wasn't really a possibility for that generation. No. You just, it sits inside you and then eventually it probably comes out in ways you're not even aware of. Yeah, something. maybe negative ways. Yeah, exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's still happening. Yeah. It's still happening. Well, that same kind of stuff is happening. So I think it's interesting, that song um, is one of, is a good example of you just really pushing it as far as, stuff you're willing to say or sing and stuff that you know you're willing to have come out of your mouth that mm -hmm. could definitely piss people off or freak mm -hmm. people out or shock people and 
I, I don't think you mind that. I think you like that sometimes. And there's definitely, I mean, at least that was part of your persona. I would say for a long time. I would say that in the first ten years, yeah. um, that I don't, you know, I can't deny that there wasn't an element of shock. Yeah. Uh, and transgression in the and this the very idea of using a name like fetus under glass yeah. or fetus interruptus for a start <laughs> um and a lot of the imagery that i was interested in but i was interested in exploring a lot of yeah. dark things as well and talking talking about things that in the first person that were ac absolutely the opposite of what i thought i mean you did a, you wrote a song called mighty whitey yeah is that kind of in that vein? it's like no but that's not i was trying to figure that out. that's more like pointing fingers at kind of racist that actually that actually came about because i was down here in dumbo on the corner and yeah. um i was about to get on the subway and this this uh, this uh prison van kind of pulled up at the lights oh, and some guy inside yelled out at me yo mighty whitey yo <laughs> yo john lennon so i was getting okay. this and so that's kind of a compliment it was kind of so that was what inspired my so you're like hey i'm mighty whitey yeah yeah, right. yeah but that was again you know taking this situation and twisting it on his head and i just you know people got people totally misread i'm sure so many things that i did and they, they ended up um but you know, it bit me in the ass a couple of times. I mean, yeah. it did bite me in the ass, in actually twice in Holland where I got bomb threats for um, concerts. But, wow! Um, People thought you were racist, or actually, they thought I was um, sexist. Oh, sexist! Okay, <laughs> because I had this was, project called wow. I had this project called Wise Blood. Yeah, and um, that was that was kind of the, the stance from that was this violent macho yeah. kind of thing it was myself and Rolly Mooseman who I met because he was the drummer of Swans and we ended up doing this project which and that's what it evolved into it was something that was influenced by two non-Americans living in America and um, creating something from that viewpoint and mm -hmm. there was there was you know there was a definite thrust on using this imagery, which was a bit rednecky and a bit okay. um, um, macho and a bit stupid, but also a bit, uh, you know, provocative. Provocative, but also coming from, you know. Were you uh, playing a character or something? Yeah. Or? Okay. Clint Ruin was kind of a and so was you, that guy. So the feminists in where was it Denmark wanted to bomb no, no, you? No, it was in oh, Holland. In Holland, yeah. That's amazing. I've never heard. No, of... they didn't want to bomb. They <laughs> they phoned in a, a threat and we had to stop the concert. Wow. Yeah. Cool. I mean, but not, um, not cool, but but you know that's that's what you know that's what we were doing then. That's what I was doing then. And but I don't want to you know that's not what I want to do for the rest of my life. Sure. It's not interesting to me, you know, right. after a while, you know, and I, there, there's been many times in my career where I've put, you know, I've stopped things and I've, I've felt like, okay, 
I just want to stop this dad and turn the page and there's yeah. new, something new I want to do. And right. the, one of the things that stopped that was, um, you know, at the probably early 90s, you know, when I started Steroid Maximus and I just felt like I wanted to make instrumental music. Yeah. And, uh, and that was in a, the vehicle for that. Um, and which subsequently led to scoring work and that wasn't the intention. Sure. But, um, I was making you know, soundtracks for imaginary You've been films. less, like, lyric-driven for the last long time. Um, you sort of get to a point where you... I don't know, maybe I'm projecting. I know for no, me... No, that's true. I get to a point where I'm like, I've written a lot of songs. I've mm-hmm. said a lot of stuff. It's not... I don't have that much... I don't have that much desire to do that anymore. I want to make music. Mm-hmm. I want music to speak for itself. I'm not saying that's what you're doing, but that's... I get that impetus. Well, it's definitely for the last 20 years yeah. I've been making mainly instrumental music and... Um, but it's interesting how people will keep hearkening back to the things that I did mm-hmm. 35 years ago. Sure. Um, where I was absolutely a different person. Um, although I am proud yeah. of the music that I've made, um, I don't feel the need to carry around everything I've ever done all the time. You know, it's yeah. baggage, you know. And, uh, and you know, as you know, you mentioned that we toured together and, um, you know, I had there was a certain point in the late 80s where I thought I could reinterpret my music in, in a rock band yeah. um, format and toured with that. And I did about five or six tours. And then there was a point where that had had, had sort of... Played started, itself out. Yeah, totally played itself out. And I just felt like I was dumbing the music down. Hmm. And I just stopped it dead in about yeah. 2001. And I said, I'm never doing this again. And okay. I didn't, you know. And you haven't. And so that's been 20 years. Yeah. You know? One thing I've been thinking about lately with music is that all the bands I love and the musicians I admire have this element of fear in their performance where you're a little scared. I was definitely that way when I saw you the first time, mm. especially before I knew you. So it's like, and that, that's kind of an amazing, that's a kind of a wonderful feeling, like seeing a band and you're a little scared by them. Mm-hmm. You're like, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't think that really, I don't, that has, doesn't happen to me anymore. Maybe because I'm just older and I know even if you're some supposedly scary rock and roller dude, you're probably, you know, getting a donut at Dunkin' Donuts before the show or something. But I don't know. I don't think there's any fear anymore in music. Uh, I, stu- I see stuff that, that uh, excites me all the time. I yeah. go to a lot of shows, and I see stuff that excites me, and I try to unpack, unpack things. Yeah. I liked, I, I'm a real sponge, you know. Yeah. I, I, I absorb a lot of music. I seek out new music all the time. Yeah, the stuff that I see that I that I say, okay, I'm, I can see how that's done. Yeah, um, I enjoy it, but I see how it's done. And then there's other things that I see where I enjoy it, and I go, I don't know how the hell they did that, and that's what's exciting. Yeah, you know. Yeah, or you know, there's things that you're, you know, and if it threatens you, then it's good because right. you have to up your game. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but in terms of feeling intimidated and scared by <laughs> a performer the, by a performer that's happened to me a few times yeah um in my life um and in fact the other day i was just talking about the first time i saw throbbing gristle and yeah. that was in like 1979 and that was really threatening and yeah intense and incredible. like you're kind of fearing for your safety you're like this whole yeah. building could come down yeah yeah <laughs> and then and then recently i saw i saw christine and i don't know if you know her no um but christine's a performance are you i guess you would say a performer a performance artist okay and um christine does uh, 
Christine's act is extremely sexual. Yeah. Uh, in a in a very visceral. Not it's sexual, it's not sexy. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that was like. You scary <laughs> it was yeah it, it made you feel like i don't know what to think about this person you know? okay um okay uh and it was you know challenging it's um, exciting to go out and see stuff that's that opens your mind i mean there's, yeah i mean this, that's why new york is and and those video and christine's videos are also extremely visceral and over the top and i've since met christine and they couldn't be nicer right you know okay um gotta check that out yeah so wise blood was a project where you were the point of view was from a person who's not american so you've been here a long time mm-hmm. are you an american citizen at this point or no not? I'm, you're not i'm a, yeah no I'm not. okay yeah. so you've been you've had this privileged position not privileged but i i enjoy being able to be american and not american so i get it i mean i'm actually american and i'm actually french too but how do you like sitting sitting in America, living here, but not being an American? Well, I'm, you know, I'm I'm more American than anything. I mean, right. I don't know. I mean, I'm on an O one visa, and I've lived here since um, 1983. So I've lived here for 30, 37 years or something. Yeah, um, that's more. That's like um, twice as long as I lived in Australia. Right. Um, that's uh, it's the majority of my life. Yeah. Um, this is the life that I know you know and, I understand uh, and but when I go to London um, I feel an affinity yeah with that place and I have a, you know and um, my mother's Scottish and I spent a lot of time in the oh, UK okay. when I was growing up and I feel like an affinity with that soil and I understand that and I understand yeah. the people and the culture there and do you have any affinity things. to Australia well I didn't go to Australia for 32 years right and I just and I went back when my father died oh wow right before he died because I knew he was on the way out and I've since now and since then I've I've decided to make an effort to go there every wow. year and I go I've been going there and doing concerts and wow reacquainting myself but it's the weirdest thing to not go somewhere for 32 yeah. years and then go there again. Um, and you've got it in your memory. It's like yeah, you're... because well, I didn't recognize anything when yeah. I got there. And when I went to Melbourne, and I was traveling from the airport to back to the neighborhood where my mother lives, and um, which is near where I grew up, very close to where I grew up, and um, the whole way there, I didn't recognize anything. That it was everything was alien. That I didn't recognize the skyline. I didn't recognize anything until I got very close to her house, mm-hmm. and then I started to recognize some streets. Um, not another thing that was um, remarkable was the fact that the trees were, you know, thirty-two years taller. Right. Um, right. That's and amazing. So. Uh, it's very strange yeah. to to have to have that in your life, you know, to have had that experience in your life, um, where you can have that, you can blink and thirty two years go yeah. by, and, and you're in a time you're machine thinking, going back. Yeah, it was a time machine thing. Now Australia is on fire, unfortunately, which is really yeah, sad. It's really sad. When I grew up I feel like I kind of resented that country yeah um, because I um, remember yeah you saying that um, 
you know you kind of feel like everything's culturally inferior and that you know that you don't fit in and so on and that's I just felt like I didn't belong in that hemisphere um, I've since since going back um, I feel like I've forgiven those feelings mm -hmm. and I felt like that those feelings came from a different person and right. you know that I you know I'm a bit more mature now and, yeah. and I can appreciate you know what you know that that country actually has like incredible cultural significance that sure. could never have come from anywhere else because it's like the Galapagos Islands or something yeah. you know it's yeah. it's it's this very remote place yeah it's this petri dish that yeah it's, it's an island that yeah. has developed this culture that couldn't have developed anywhere yeah. else even though it's been infused by the united states and it's been infused by the uk and yeah. that's what it was it was i mean infused colonized by sure. those countries and they've wreaked their horrible havoc on the indigenous I know. peoples and indigenous species as as does happen yes and but my my great-grandfather is actually from um, the States oh okay um, so I'm only like one or two generations I see that makes away sense. from that anyway so you mentioned this performer who I imagine is trans or something like that right now in the culture I feel like white Western males are kind of the bottom of the totem pole is like in terms of what we want what the culture wants to hear from mm. so it's like what's the role of a, someone who's you, you're not going to be someone else you're, that you're not you're always going to be a white guy I'm always going to be a white guy what's our role now like in the culture as it is now no one ever wanted to hear from me in the first place anyway <laughs> so, so I'm just grateful that I've got a few you know that I have um, I have people who are interested in what I do and facilitate what I do and some for some strange reason you know and you know I have you know once um, a friend described me as a liminal person so I which means that I straddle a lot of fields uh -huh. and so my life in one field doesn't necessarily bleed over to my life in another field mm -hmm. so I'm happy that I can exist in the world of you know television productions or be doing serious works you know serious commissions for you know chamber ensembles or mm -hmm. orchestras or whatever and um but at the same time i can you know be releasing records on my label or other labels and um do you have records planned are you doing any more like yeah. records for record's sake as far as i mean uh, yeah I know you're doing orchestral stuff yeah i have two albums coming out this year okay. um one on ipecac which is coming out in april um which is a collaboration between myself and simon steensland who is a swedish composer that i met um a couple of years ago um i knew his work but i went i was doing a commission for great learning orchestra who's a it's a ensemble in stockholm and it just turned out that he was actually playing as a member of them and I already knew his work and so we connected then and he then he liked what I had created for the Great Learning Orchestra and he asked me if I could if he could do a cover of one of the movements so I sent him the score for that and he did this cover version which was really great like an orchestral cover version no it wasn't orchestral so he took what I had done you did it yours was the, orchestral with, yeah, yeah. Was, which was orchestral and then he Re, uh, revoiced it for other instruments yeah so then he didn't know what to do with it and then I suggested well um, why don't we make an album 
and so we made an album long distance and um he sent me some pieces of music and i added he's in things sweden to them. yeah he's in stockholm that's fantastic and then i uh i have an electronic project called zordox and the, I've just finished the second album of Zordox and that's coming out in June I think on Editions Migo which is an Austrian label they mm. also released the first Zordox album and then I've got about nine other albums that I'm, are in various different states right. two, of, two of which I hope to finish this year and okay. they'll come out next year um, but there's collaborations with Jakob Kierkegaard there's um, um, an Archer soundtrack album, hopefully, and uh, a string, an album of string quartets. I've started a new Fetus album, which would be the last Fetus album, um, and I plan to do that with an orchestra. Um, wow. I've been like the performance you did, sort of in that vein. No, it's like a full orchestra. This would be okay. like a symphony orchestra, and no other like traditional instruments. Just I don't know. Okay, I don't you're know not yet. sure. I mean, I'm I'm still wow. working on that. Okay. Um, and then I've been working a lot with Simon Haynes, who has a group called Tradici Bachi. Okay. And we write a lot of material together. So we've been writing, um, we've written a whole album's worth of um, songs for the female voice, and we're starting to record that. Wow. Uh, so we're working with a lot of different singers on that. You're busy. You so are a busy man. a lot going on. Plus I was Archer gonna, and all that. Oh, well, Archer, I love. That's mm -hmm. great that you're, mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how you find time to do all this stuff. I remember one time you said, I micromanage my time. Yeah, I do. Yeah. <laughs> Which I'm sure you have to. I, I was going to ask you a question, but half of it doesn't really make any sense. It was who, if you could have a dream collaboration with anyone, living or dead, I was, gonna, or it could be a band, but I would like both of those. One of them, like a, people who aren't alive, mm. who, who's that collaboration with? And then people living, it sounds like you're collaborating with a lot of amazing people already. Yeah. But. I mean, I'm, I've been writing some stuff, um, and sending it to Melvin's, and I'm hoping hoping that that turns into an album. With Melvin's, yeah, we've oh, already nice. we've already done some things together. Wow! And I think that that, but that's high on my wish list, you know, for that album to come to fruition. Um, Amazing! So that's of living people. I would. I always wanted to do something with David Bowie. Yeah. Um, that's not going to happen. No. Um, but uh, you know, he had a huge impact yeah. in my life in my creative life and I still have dreams about him yeah yeah I mean, and I have you know I have a lot of ambitions for this life as well which I hope to realize mm -hmm. and, you know and i I feel like I'm kind of, because of the volume of work that I want to do and mm -hmm. the volume of work that I do, um, it makes me confront my mortality, you know, right. and wonder if I'm going to, how much work, um, you're going to get I, done. Can I get, yeah. Can I really realistically get done? Because I want to be doing symphonies. I want to do an opera. Yeah. Um, I want to do these other things that are outside the scope of what I'm doing now. You know, it's a good problem to have in a way because you just have tons of ideas. You're not sitting around with nothing to do. Oh, yeah. You've got it's a lot going on. It'll all, it's all going to be fun. Mm -hmm. You might not get it all done, but... Well, I don't do things because they're fun. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> fun is not the word I should use. It's all going to be rewarding and... Yeah, rewarding is... Yeah. I, if something is rewarding um, and that's, that's where I get my juice, you know. When you mentioned time management... 
I, f- I feel it's important to for me to try and balance you know um, where I get to challenge what I'm doing all the time yeah. not all the time I don't challenge what I'm you know I don't challenge myself all the time I definitely don't um, because that's not um, that's not it's really not always the, available well that's not really the function of making um, say these soundtrack works it's not the function of it is to sort of like um, serve the is to, serve the content yeah, yeah yeah to not to not like expand the vocabulary of music that's not the context in which I would do that I do want to expand right. my vocabulary vocabulary of music but I'll use a, a different um, forum for sure. that you know yeah. and I and that's why it's taken so long to make a new fetus album because I want to challenge the vocabulary that I've had absolutely but you know there's some really quite beautiful and striking things that come out even in that form of Archer and the Venture Brothers oh yeah it has so. to be because then I wouldn't do it otherwise fantastic thanks for talking to me JG Thurwell of All right, I hope you enjoyed that conversation with J.G. Thurwell. He's such an interesting and prolific person. I really enjoyed talking to him. Thank you for listening, and please subscribe to my podcast. I know that is so annoying to hear, and I understand now why people do it all the time, because it's the only way I can track who is listening and who's not listening, and I need to know what What you're you're doing doing at all times. Also, please go to fetus.org to find out all about J.G. Thurwell's activities Fetus, F-O-E-T-U-S dot org. You can also go to pierredeguillon.com to find out about my concerts and upcoming events. And I'd just like to say, in closing, that in the realm of American politics, uh, democracy has taken a blow once again. Um, The president is being propped up by a bunch of morally bankrupt, dishonest, players who have decided that it's okay for him to flout the law and disregard the rules of democracy. It seems to me that the takeaway from this impeachment proceedings was that everyone sort of admits and understands that the president broke the rules, possibly broke the laws, but it's okay as long as he's on your team. So that's kind of the takeaway that we got from the Republican Party. So my response to that would be they need to be removed. So let's do that. Let's go out and vote. Um, I don't think capitalism is great or perfect. I don't think democracy is perfect the way it stands in America. But the best thing we need to do is to support the Democratic Party because they're not propped up by a propaganda apparatus. Republicans are propped up by Fox News, which is their propaganda wing, which repeats and enlarges and legitimizes any bullshit that they put out there. The Democrats have regular free press on their side which will call them out if they're lying talking shit so the cards are stacked against truth and against the rule of law but we really do have a few more chances to try to make it work so continue to vote especially in all the local elections from the bottom up and let's uh, clean house I think we can do a lot better in the meantime keep listening to great music keep supporting the arts if you can pay for music i suggest you do it it's always better than getting it for free thank you for listening and namaste Namaste. Namaste.